wonderful to sing these Christmas songs. And I just, you know, I know you know this, but I just want to state it as bluntly as I can. There may be lots of places where you're hearing lots of these songs over the audio speakers and stores. It amazes me in our culture, as much as it's rejected God and anything having to do with the supernatural. It's amazing the things that people allow to have sung uh, in their stores. Praise to Jesus. And we just want to note we're not doing this because of cultural habit this morning. We're not doing this because this is just what you do when you go to church. Uh, we actually really believe these things with all our heart, with all our mind, because it's the God, word of God. And, and our hope is not this wispy, ethereal hope. It's, it's concrete. It's, uh, that's not concrete. That's wood. But you're, you're sitting on concrete. In other words, we really believe we're going to see Jesus come in body again, that he's going to reign from Jerusalem and be king over all the earth. And when he reigns, boys and girls will be safe. Uh, as I said last week, no more locks on our doors, no more passwords, no more cheating, stealing, lying, because not only will God remove sin and wicked people from the earth, he'll actually change the hearts of those who are here, who trust in him. So just don't allow yourself, believer in Jesus Christ, to sing just through those songs without the fire of your hope being stoked. Don't do it. You let your mind wander in faith and joy and, and what it's going to be like. Um, because we honor God when we take his word and we allow our hearts to anticipate just how good it's going to be. And it's going to be wonderful. And we're going to learn a little bit about that this morning. If you have a Bible, if you don't, that's okay. You can just listen. But if you want to turn with me to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, a, a book of the Bible that many don't know about, uh, don't know much about. And we have been in our Sunday mornings studying this book together for some time now. And we come in chapter 6 to another prophecy, a vision given to Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet of the Lord. He is a relatively young man at this point, his early 30s. The time period of these prophecies or visions is when um, a few thousand Jews have returned after being exiled to Babylon. At this point, uh, the nation of Israel in the north has been destroyed and exiled uh, the, Judah in the south had been overrun by the Babylonians 70 years earlier or so, actually about 85 years ago at the point of this prophecy. Um, Jerusalem has been in rubble. They had 15 years earlier, this initial uh, group of returnees had come back and they'd laid the foundation level, the first layer of massive stones for the temple but the work had come to a grinding halt because, after all, they were in the midst of a, a pile of rubble in Jerusalem. Uh, they were trying to build their own homes, and they were um, being frustrated and even attacked by enemies. They were discouraged. Uh, they were greatly discouraged. And it seemed like at this point, it seemed like all God's amazing promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to David about a kingdom it seemed like those promises had been forgotten by God. And this series of prophecies, revelations of truth, given to the prophet Zechariah were given primarily to comfort and encourage God's people that far from forgetting God's people or his promises, God remembered them. And though it appears as though evil has the upper hand at the present time, that God revealed to Zechariah some visions in the night of what was going to happen in the future. So we come this morning to the eighth and uh, final vision, and it is a, a glorious vision here in chapter 6. And I know we might not think of this as an Advent text, uh, a, a fitting passage to preach on for Christmas, but uh, I'll argue that it, it's actually pretty appropriate. And, and the way it's worked out, uh, this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 8, and then next uh, Sunday, Christmas Eve morning, we'll look together at verses 9 through 15, 
which is an amazing Old Testament passage on the coronation of the Messiah. And that's what we're celebrating this Christmas season, where Christ means Messiah. Messiah, Christ, by the way, same. So if you hear Christ, it means Messiah, anointed one. You hear a Messiah, it means Christ. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. So we're going to end uh, this section of visions uh, Christmas Eve morning with the coronation of the king. So this morning we'll give attention to verses 1 through 8. And uh, as I read, you, you might think, wow, this is, what is this? And so that's my job. I'm going to try to explain it, all right? So let me begin by reading Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Zechariah wrote, Then I lifted up my eyes again and saw, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. And the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot, black horses, and with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, dappled or spotted horses, all of them mighty. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, and the dappled ones go forth to the south country. Now the mighty ones went out, and they sought to go to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have caused my spirit to have rest in the land of the north. Amen. This is God's word. I know that some of you may have a translation that reads a little bit different there, and I I will uh, touch on that uh, in my sermon. Let's pause and pray one more time to ask for God's help. Um, Do we need a little help in understanding this passage? Okay, good. Let's, Let's ask him. So God, we pause. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would not only be present with us, which you are, but that you, our teacher, would not only explain these things to us, help me to explain, but we pray that the end result would be love for adoration for Jesus and hope in his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, here we have this Sunday morning. Here we are in 2023, and uh, we've come to church and the pastor picks a passage in which there's red horses and black horses and white horses and and uh, there's chariots and there's angels and and what's going on here well uh, it is in the bible so that's that's my first defense is the whole bible is god's word and we don't want to uh, pick and choose in the bible what parts we like and don't like it's all god's word it's all critical it's all important but here we find in fact as I hope to explain to you, a wonderfully encouraging passage for those who hope in God and love Jesus Christ. Because this morning, I think you know this, but we live in a very, very dark world. Um, It is increasingly hard, even with children, isn't it, to keep up appearances. In previous generations, we could do that. We We could just kind of protect the children and, and just kind of constantly just kind of manufacture this veneer that would keep from them, which is not all bad. Kids don't need to know all that's bad in the world. They don't need that. But we used to be able to do a better job of at least in the early years of, of hiding from them the truth, which is actually the world is very dark. It's very corrupt. It's very violent. It's very evil. It's not, as the song goes, a wonderful world. Oh, sure, there are, there are wonderful things to see. There are beautiful things to see. There are many, many kind people. There are many graces that we know. There are things that we eat that taste very good. These are all gifts of God given to us for our enjoyment. But this world, ever since Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, This world, in its rebellion against God, has been under the curse of God, the judgment of God, 
which is the reason why there is disease and why there is famines and why there are catastrophic events and why there is death. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible explains to us that the reason why this world is so dark is because Adam and Eve, we have sinned and we have all sinned and that there is one particular angel created by God who thought so highly of himself that he thought he could be God and his name is Satan. And he fell, God cast him rather out of heaven and with him a third of the angels and Satan and his demons the deceiver has ever since been wreaking havoc on this world, leading men and women into darkness, into futility, into corruption, into war, and all the different things that we see. The Bible has a very helpful explanation for why the things are the way they are. And you say, well, that's very depressing. I came, it's already dark time of year. I've already maybe struggling with the light deprivation, some of us, and, and the world is very discouraging. And I come to church and, and uh, the pastor starts by telling us things are very dark. Well, listen, very right up front, the way to hope is not by turning from the reality of how thing, dark things are. The Bible tells it the way it is, and that's one of the reasons we know it's such a hope-giving book. The Bible describes to us the world that we live in, and it is a dark world, and it is a world in which, in particular, God's people are often singled out by Satan and by those who do not love God for persecution and for violence. We see that unfolding before our eyes right now in, in Israel. And though most in Israel do not profess Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, which he is, and are far from God. Nonetheless, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, even though it is largely unbelieving, it is still the nation that long ago God chose when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God chose for a special reason to, through that nation, to bless all other nations. And it is not accidental this morning that this tiny, puny little nation, the size of Vermont, is the center of the world's attention. And evil men seek to destroy that nation. That is true of Israel. That is true of Christians uh, throughout the ages who are persecuted because they live in, believe in God, who are thought they are, uh, they are called hateful people simply because they want to honor God's word. This is a world that is not friendly to God and is not friendly to those who are God's people. And there is great violence now against those who have any association with God. And in the last days, the Bible tells us there will be even greater violence. Zechariah and member, his generation, for them, this wasn't theory. They're literally standing in Jerusalem at that point, And the rubble of the city kind of looks like some of the pictures you see of Gaza these days. That's what the Babylonians had reduced the city to, rubble. They had destroyed it. And, and when they overthrew the city and there was famine and all kinds of violence, unmentionable. Zechariah and others knew of that kind of violence and of that kind of slaughter. And so what hope is there in this dark world? What hope is there? The hope is God and God's plan for the nations. This is the eighth vision here in chapter six. And it is, it's interesting how God ordered these series of visions that God gave to Zechariah in the night. They kind of mirror each other. So, so there's a form to them, in other words, and we won't get into too much detail, but I simply want to note, for example, if you turn back to chapter one, verse eight, in the first vision there, God gave to Zechariah in the night there in the first vision, Zechariah sees in the night a man riding on a red horse, and he's standing among the myrtle trees. And that man, we learn ultimately, is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. And we see a red horse, and we see in verse 8 a white horse, and we see a sorrel or a spotted horse, maybe some of your, your uh, translations have. So there's a similarity with and contrast between the eighth vision and the first vision. Quickly, in the first vision, there's three horses. In the fourth vision, there's four horses, the addition of a black one. We're just making observations for a moment, okay? We're seeking to understand uh, Zechariah chapter 6. 
Another contrast or similarity is in the first vision in chapter 1, these horses and the angels are in a ravine. They are in a valley, and some wonder if that's the Kidron Valley between Jerusalem, which is a mountain that rises up, and the Mount of Olives on the other side. We don't know exactly, but in the first vision, they are in the ravine. They're in the valley, kind of hidden, kind of in the shadows. In the eighth vision, what are they doing? They're coming out of the valley. They're going forth from between these two mountains. A third similarity in contrast is in both visions, there are angels, these horses, the angels with these horses, that are going throughout all the earth to patrol the earth. In the first vision, they're coming back to report to Christ, the Messiah, the man among in the valley. They're coming back to report in the chapter 8, in the 8th vision, they're going out and they're not coming back to report. They're just going to patrol. And then a fourth just observation is in the first vision or in the opening lines, we find that in the first vision, the earth is still and at rest. Verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11 the angels report back. They say, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. And, and that, by the way, was not a good still. That was not a good quiet. In other words, it seemed at the present time that the evil nations, the evil rulers were doing pretty good. Does that describe the world we're in right now? I mean, do we live in a world where evil men and women all around the world are shaking in their boots, terrified that they're going to get in trouble? No. No, at every layer of government, of society, there are evil, wicked, corrupt, godless, Christ-hating men and women who hate others who are actually really comfortable and seem to have the upper hand. In the first vision, the earth is still and at ease. In the eighth vision, the final vision, it's God, his wrath and his spirit have been rested. It's God who is at ease and at rest. So there is a mirroring here, mirror, mirror image in, in contrast at the same time between the eighth vision and the first. And so here we're seeing at the culmination of this series of visions that God has a plan. God is revealing to Zechariah not just the way things are, which is, can be discouraging, but God is revealing how things are going to play out, how things are going to unfold. In Zechariah's day and in our day, it seems that God is largely silent and indifferent to the wickedness of this world. That's why when there's something terrible that happens, people say, where's God? Now that... Um, don't, don't ask that question, by the way, in front of me. Uh, that's a very... <laughs> well, hold on. You've, you've lived your whole life. You haven't thought much about God, served him. But when something goes wrong, it's his fault. Anyways, I digress. This culture is very arrogant. No one has any interest in God except when things go wrong and then it's his fault. Huh. Funny how that works. But it does seem as though God is indifferent, unaware at this time. It seems as though wickedness has the upper hand. And in the first vision, we learn that, in fact, God is, he knows everything that is going on. You know, the line about Santa, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows all that. Uh, well, um, actually, God is the one who knows. And he receives reports and he knows. He's aware constantly. God knows everything that is happening. There is no evil. There is no wicked that is being carried on, that is not being uh, taken notice of by God. And that the fires of the holy, just wrath of God are being stoked with the sins and the rebellion, the wickedness of men. And, and he's not forgetting that's what the first vision told us, is that God is very aware right now of what's going on. But it does seem as though he's not going to do anything. Is he going to do anything about it? It's one thing for God to know, 
But is he going to is he going to act? Is is he going to change things? And this eighth vision tells us, oh yes, oh yes, he is. God is going to change things in the last days. God is going to make sure that we, he's going to make certain that this world once again is his world, not just by right, but in actuality. So again, the first vision tells us that God is informed, but the eighth vision tells us that God has a plan, that God has a divinely appointed schedule and everything is on time. In other words, God will not forever just continue to receive reports. The time is coming when he will go forth, he and his angels. So let's look more closely now at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We kind of have set the, the background and the stage, and let's look a little more closely now. Again, in chapter 6, verse 1, Zechariah is being shown a series of visions. This is very unique. Not many men and women throughout history have received this kind of vision. We shouldn't expect it. We learn what we need to know now in the Bible. But God had this vision recorded for us. This was a, he was, gave it to Zechariah so that we would know something. And Zechariah sees in the night, and, and first we can, we can just note that in verses 1 to 3, it's an impressive sight. It's an impressive sight. Let's just look at a few of the details. What did Zechariah see? Well, first Zechariah sees four chariots, verse 1. Four chariots were coming forth. Now, I don't know uh, what your thought is about a chariot. You maybe think, oh, that's so, uh, that's such old tech, you know. Um, you think that's not very impressive. Well, we just have to remember that in, in that ancient time, chariots were undeniably the most powerful military weapon there was. They were your nuclear missile. And it's not hard to figure it out if you're a foot soldier and you're down on a field and there you are with your spear or your sword, and you have coming across the field, chasing towards you with horses and a chariot, and there's a couple guys in the back of the chariot that are higher than you, and they have, they have wheels which have spikes on them that can cut your legs out from underneath you. Uh, yeah, you see a chariot coming, you're, you're not too happy. The more chariots you had, the more impressive your military force was. So, these are the armies of heaven. These, this is representative of the military of heaven. These are chariots. Um, I love this. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. Second Kings chapter 6. I love this scene um, in Elisha's day. Elisha the prophet, this is many years earlier than Zechariah, and uh, uh, Elisha was hated by the king of Aram because Elisha was a prophet and every time the, the foreign wicked king of Aram would try to do something against Israel, Elisha knew because God revealed to him he'd spill the beans. And so finally the king of Aram wanted to go take out Elisha. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go kill that Elisha. And uh, they surrounded the city that Elisha was living in and Elisha's servant, the attendant of, of Elisha, woke up in the morning and he saw the military force surrounding the city. He was terrified. He's like, we're done. We're toast. But I love this. I love this in 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, the servant says to Elisha, alas, my master, what shall we do? As he looked at the armies of Aram and their chariots all around. And Elisha said, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Horses and chariots of fire, fire being associated with the holiness and the blazing glory of God. So chariots and horses are associated with the hosts of the Lord. Remember, one of the most common names of God in the Old Testament is Lord of hosts. And he's not talking about human armies. Hosts of these angelic 
powerful beings. So Zechariah first sees four chariots. Secondly, he sees the chariots going forth. He sees verse, verse 1, they are coming forth or going forth between the two mountains. And actually in this, these verse, eight verses, there's a whole lot of going forth. Uh, they are going out. There's a lot of activity, and this has been the case in the whole series of visions. God is not inactive. In verse 5, the chariots and the horses are going forth, verse 5. Verse 6, the black horses are going forth to the north. The white ones are going forth after them. The dappled ones are going forth to the south country. Verse 7, the mighty ones went out and they sought to go out. And the Lord said, go patrol the earth. And they patrolled the earth. Verse 8, see those who are going to the... See, it's simple verbiage but it's repeated and repeated and repeated to communicate God is not dawdling on his throne. He's the sovereign king. He knows what's going on. And the day is coming when the plan is going to go forth and he's going to say go and his angels are going to go. They're going forth. Uh, Thirdly, I want you to notice, we're just observing in these first three verses, they go out between two mountains of bronze, verse 1, bronze mountains. A lot of thought about what that could be. Is that Mount Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives? Um, We don't know exactly. That seems most likely to me because... It would, Jerusalem, it seemed right now in Zechariah's day was in rubble, seemed like it could be easily overrun by the Babylonians. In the last days, it would seem as Jerusalem be easily overrun. What's in Jerusalem right now? It's the center of Islam, the most powerful religion next to Christianity on earth. Jerusalem seems as though it's far from being the place where the true God, the God of the Bible is worshiped, And yet the reality is because God has determined that that will be the place where he will be worshipped and that will be the capital city of his son, the king, when he returns. The reality is that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives, that little mountain you think it's olive trees, well, we learn in Zechariah that that is the very place where one day the Son of God is going to return and that is where his resurrected feet are going to touch down. So... It may seem as though the Middle East is a very uncertain, unstable area, but because God has declared it shall be so, these two locales are like bronze. Good luck banging your fist against them. Mountains of bronze. The idea is simply of strength, of certainty. Notice, not only then does Zechariah see four chariots, he also sees four horses. Four horses in verse 2 and 3. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, dappled or spotted horses. So each chariot has numerous horses pulling them. And that's a very common image in uh, ancient archaeology of a great king and of warriors. You can have a chariot with just one horse, but if you have more horses, you have more power, you have more strength, you have more force. These are chariots that are impressive, and they are pulled by an impressive team of colored horses. And we wonder about the horses, but it's clear in the scriptures that these different colors represent various uh, aspects or realities. And you can look later, if you'd like, at Revelation chapter 6. Of course, that's much later in history, but God gives to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 6 a vision that also includes these colored horses. And this is all God's word, and it's John is, God's not giving to John like a completely different vision of the future that he gave to Zechariah. Of course not. It complements it. And so we know in briefly that the red horse depicts war or violence or bloodshed. In other words, God is in the last days in judgment on this earth going to permit a level of violence and bloodshed, war to take place that has ne- like never before. 
The black horse, we learn from Revelation 6, 5 through 7, depicts famine. That in the last days, as wicked men and women rebel against God, defy God, follow the Antichrist, that one of the judgments will be famine, terrible. The white horse in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, and elsewhere in Scripture, and very common in ancient history, depicts complete victory. It's triumph. It's victory. And the dappled or the spotted horse depicts in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, death. Death. So you have very sobering images. And uh, I, I wonder here even... Um, I, can just, I can just picture in, in some churches, uh, maybe, or some saying, well, that's, that's very violent. That's, that's not what God's about. God is about love. God is about, oh, God is, there's no one loving God. God is love. But God is not going to usher in peace of Christ and reign on earth with a feather. That's not how wicked men and kingdoms are going to be changed. That's the naivety, for example, right now on, on our college campuses. And uh, of course, we pray earnestly for the civilians in Gaza, for the children in Gaza. What a terrible thing war is. What a horrible thing. But this whole line of free Palestine and uh, a lot of um, brainwashed college students who think that they are supporting the cause of, of, uh, uh, of the oppressed against the oppressor. Just take your average liberal college um, ideology about um, life and go check that out and try that with Hamas in Gaza. See how that goes. See how that goes. And by the way, we do grieve for the Palestinians in Gaza but most of them support Hamas. So in other words, we gotta be grown-ups and we gotta to come to grips with the world is full of real sin, real wickedness, and it's not floating around. It's actually in hearts and in minds. And what the Bible tells us is that God is gonna deal with real sin, with real wickedness, not just in theory and concept, but in reality. And the way that God is ultimately going to triumph and bring in, usher in the kingdom of Christ is by, in the last days, a massive, just, glorious, fearful display of power. And he will subdue and humiliate and his enemies and glorify himself and his majesty. So that's how it's going to go down. These red, black, white, dappled horses are not to be shunned. They are not to be kind of overlooked. These are displays of the glorious character and might of our God. So it's in it's a, an amazing scene. It's an impressive sight. But then in verses 4 to 7, as we continue to look at this passage together, we go from just the sight. He, he sees this amazing scene, and I, I neglected to verse 3. They are mighty, and that's the real emphasis of those opening, verses th opening three verses. These are mighty creatures, angels, and that will become clear as we go along. Verses 4 to 7 now, we have an explanation. Zechariah has questions. So do we. But he says, verse 4, I said to the angel who's speaking with me, what are these? And uh, we have the same question. And so God, through this angel, gives an explanation in verse 5. These, in other words, these four chariots, these, these pulled by horses, are four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Some of you may have four winds of heaven. Wind, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, it even has breathiness in it, the idea of wind or spirit. And it's clear that these are angelic beings. These are powerful beings. And we know they're not just wind because verse 5 says they're going forth after what? After standing, wind doesn't stand. So these are angels who stand before the Lord of all the earth. 
These are awesome, spiritual, angelic beings. They are like the cherubim, these angels that Ezekiel saw. Again, we don't have time in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Um, he sees the very throne of God with wheels. And as I explained in Sunday school class this morning, four wheels. And that strikes us as a little odd. But the, the imagery is there that the throne and the rule of God knows no limit. It can go in any direction. It is mobile. God is not static, stationary on his throne, fixated somewhere, off somewhere, can't do anything about this world. His rule, his dominion, his power, his authority is active, it's mobile, and under his throne are these wheels, and they are, in the vision given to Ezekiel, actually four cherubim, these amazing angels. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 10, 11, as, uh, they, as the wheels went in any of their four directions, they went without turning. And he explains in verse 20, these are the living creatures I saw beneath the God of Israel. I knew that they were cherubim. So four angels underneath the throne in the vision given to Ezekiel. And then fast forward in your Bible to Revelation chapter 7. And there John sees four angels. John 7 verse 1. John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so no wind could blow. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom, listen to this, the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. In other words, God is Lord of hosts, he is God of hosts, but apparently in the last days there are four angels, powerful angels in, angels in particular, that God is going to release to go and to usher in judgment upon this earth. So back to Zechariah chapter 6, these four chariots, active, powerful military machinery, represent the very army of heaven and in particular four angelic spirit, spirits who stand before the Lord and they stand before the Lord you know they're not just kind of standing there looking down you know watch you know think about it there are angels right now in the presence of God they don't sleep they don't need to eat they don't get tired their knees don't hurt they don't go bad um, think about it. Angels standing in the very throne room of heaven in the presence of God the Father and Christ at his right hand, knowing something of the plan that is about to unfold. They're crying out, holy, 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 as Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. But think about it. Angels who don't sleep, who don't get tired, standing every moment, every moment ready and waiting to go at a word from the throne. That's the standing ready. That's standing. This is not standing. This is like, just tell me where to go. These powerful angelic beings, they exist to do the will of God. Psalm 103, verses 19 through 21, speaks of the sovereignty of God, but in verse 20, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, you, his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. That's these angels. So they, they are four spirits, Zechariah 6, verse 5. They go forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Don't pass by that too quickly. At the time of this prophecy, Zechariah is preaching to a people who are existing in an area smaller than Merrimack County. And they don't even own it. It belongs to the Persian king. They're, they're decimated. They're nothing. The only reason they can rebuild the temple is because the king in Persia, modern-day Iran, said they could. But they don't even own the land anymore. It's not even their kingdom. There's not even an official son of David on the throne. 
I mean, it seems like this God, the God of Israel, isn't even God of this puny little area. Never mind the God of all the earth. But he is. And in particular, this phrase here, before the Lord of all the earth. Remember the eighth vision kind of mirrors the first vision. And in the first vision, I know it's been a while, but there was a man standing in the valley by the myrtle tree. That's a symbol of Israel's... um, Uh, worship and life and we learn that that man is no ordinary man but that man is the pre-incarnate Christ the Messiah he's called the branch and and we'll learn that look that next week and the Lord of all the earth of course is God but in the context this is the Messiah this is the promised one this is the king Jesus is the Lord of not just Judea not just Israel, not just Syria and Egypt and Iraq and Iran, but of Europe and of Russia and of the islands and of China and of Taiwan and of Japan and of the United States. And yes, you independent New Englanders, yeah, he's even king of this little turf. He's king of all the earth. He, this world may be in rebellion against Jesus, against God, but he never handed over the title deed to Satan or to men. It's still his. And as we sing that song, uh, we've been singing a lot over the last year or two. I love that line. I can't remember the name of the song, but it says, when Christ comes, he'll take back his world. Love that. He's the Lord of all the earth. This is Jesus, the angel of the Lord, the branch, the Messiah. Uh, this, I love the scene, and you know, again, moving quickly, but Joshua chapter 5, he's the, the Lord of all the earth. This is a very military scene here with the chariots and the angels. And, 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 and what is Jesus doing there? Well, didn't you know that Jesus is the commander of the armies of the Lord? You have to look at Joshua 5 for that. You can do that later. But Joshua, before he goes to conquer Jer- Jericho, sees a, a man standing with a sword in, in the early morning. And, and Joshua says, essentially, are you for us or against us? And I love it. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, this man answers Joshua. He says, no, 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 rather indeed, I come now as commander of the host of Yahweh, of the Lord. So Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Jesus is the commander of the Lord of the armies of the Lord of God. One with God and the commander of the army. So Christ is the great and compassionate savior of sinners. Of course he is. And we rejoice in that this Christmas season. But listen, Christ is at the same time a terrible, fierce, and frightening defender and avenger of his people. That's perhaps the most neglected biblical characteristic of the biblical Jesus in our culture today. He is loving, he is kind, he is mild, he is gentle, and he'll save any sinner who comes in faith to him. But if you are not reconciled to God, and if you persist in your own way, and basically living as though God is not God and Christ is not Christ, and we continue to live as though we're little gods and goddesses, and we continue to live as though other people don't matter, and we continue to sin against other people made in the image of God, we are one day going to meet Jesus, and he's not going to be meek and mild, and he's not going to be your defender, he's going to be your enemy. And, and, and God forbid, but what a terrifying thing. When you see Jesus and his eyes are full of fire, as commander of the hosts of the Lord. And I say fire there in verse 8. You notice uh, some of you have the translation um, that these chariots go out and they, they go on mission. And some of you have, they've, God says, my, you've caused my wrath to rest or be at ease. Others, I've read this morning a translation, caused my spirit. I think my spirit is the better translation. But one of the things I want you to notice is the unity of the Godhead. Sometimes we think only the Father is, is, is angry against sin. But the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. One God, three persons. And God is not indifferent to the wickedness of this world. His heart is fired up with a holy fire 
a holy justice. And the day is coming when he's going to give the order to these angels and they are going to go out and patrol the earth and unleash God's judgment. These four spirits we see, Zechariah is told that uh, in verse uh, 6, that the black horses, in other words, uh, the famine apparently is going to go to the north. Uh, the north, by the way, is always for Israel and Judah where most of their, always, most of the time where their enemies came from. Because you have the Mediterranean to the west, probably not enemies, enemies coming there. And to their direct east, you have just this massive desert where modern day Jordan is. So typically enemies didn't come from the Mediterranean or from Jordan. They're coming down somehow from from Turkey or from Iraq and Iran, they're coming down from what's modern day Syria. And so judgment goes to the north and it's in the form of famine. Uh, you know where Hezbollah is up on the north of Israel right now? Yeah, that, that territory. You know where ultimately up in the north Russia is that has no problem with supporting Iran and eliminating Israel? Yeah, up north. Uh, up north where Turkey is, yeah. These nations that would be absolutely fine with Israel being wiped off the face of the planet. Yeah. Famine's going to go there. White also, Horus, is going to go to the north. In other words, in the place where traditionally Israel's greatest enemies were, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, victory is going to go there. God's, God's going to win. The dappled, the spotted horses go to the south. That's where Egypt is and other enemies and they will receive a visitation of death. What about the red horse? What about that? It would seem that the red horse uh, doesn't go to the north or the south, but stays in Israel. And that's in keeping with the rest of the book of Zechariah and the Bible, because in the last days, the Bible says that war will come to that geographical location in Israel like never before. And the closing scene of Zechariah we'll look at in just a moment as we close. The closing scene of Zechariah is the armies of the world besieging Jerusalem to slaughter and commit genocide against the Jews. It's going to seem like they're going to win. But in reality, though much death will occur in Israel, that location in the last days will become a snare for the godless nations of the world. They'll actually be gathered by God in, to Israel in judgment. And there they will finally be slain by the true Christ, the Lord of all the earth. Turn with me in closing, if you have your Bible, to Zechariah 14. I turn here often. Zechariah 14, by the way, should be one of the most beloved chapters in your Bible. I don't know if you ever thought of that. Because it tells you how things end. It tells you who wins. It's good. Um, I'd love to read the whole thing, but let, let me just start in verse 2. Zechariah 14, verse 2. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations that came against Israel. As the day when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet. God has feet? Yes, God the Son has resurrected feet. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which in, is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. And Jesus will come to beleaguered, besieged Jerusalem. He'll create this valley that the people can flee through. Verse 5, he says, You'll flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Um, they will flee just as they fled before an earthquake in the days of Uzziah. Then, end of verse 5, then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Those are the angels and those who are Christ. Verse 9, this is how it ends. And you, you, you want to orient your life to this reality. Uh, if you're... Uh, if, if this was a stock market option as to whether this would happen, you, you want to put all your currency in this one. And the Lord, verse 9, will 
be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name one. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this hope that as evil and discouraging as this world is, you tell us in your word how the story ends. But we want to be ready for it. And maybe some of us this morning here realize that we're not so sure which side we're on. We know, God, that we must, all of us, be made right with you. None of us, by nature, inherently are your people. It only comes by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. So I pray this morning for any who are here who, who are just passing through life and, and not thinking about how things will play out. I pray that today that there would be a searching of hearts and a praying to you that everyone who's here may know Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Help us to get ready, O God, for these, these great things that are coming. And whether we die first and go to be with you or whether we live until the coming of Christ, we pray that you'll help us to be men and women who are living in fear of you, in love, joy, and anticipation. And we just thank you, O God. We, we cannot thank you enough that in the face of all the darkness, all the evil, that we have set before us in your word a beautiful, glorious, hope, joy-filled kingdom coming for all who trust in Jesus. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.